This is exactly right. This story contains adult content and language, along with references to sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. It's a real mystery and fascinating one. So my name is Josh Zeman. I'm a filmmaker, documentarian. I do a lot of work in true crime. Right now, just premiered a series called The Killing Season, uh, which looks at the case of the Long Island serial killer. I'm Kate Winkler-Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show. I've interviewed some people in person and some from my home studio over Zoom, and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. Joshua Zeman is a filmmaker in New York City, and he has a new true crime documentary series called The Sons of Sam, A Descent into Darkness. It's streaming now on Netflix, and it's about the hunt for the Son of Sam killer and the rabbit hole that Josh goes down trying to prove that David Berkowitz did not act alone. And there's a podcast that goes along with it called Searching for the Sons of Sam. Josh has done an excellent job at research in the Long Island serial killer case. This really is behind the scenes of how he found his information and how he came to his conclusions. And a few of his conclusions might surprise you. The story basically starts in December of 2010. There was an escort named Shannon Gilbert, and she was hired to go to a client's house in a very strange little enclave called Oak Beach in Long Island. It's a gated community. She was driven by a driver named Michael Pack. And Shannon went to the house of a man named Joseph Brewer. They hung out. We assumed to drugs. Uh, we don't know exactly what happened. At some point, Shannon starts to freak out. She feels that Joseph Brewer is trying to attack her or something to that effect. Joseph Brewer calls the driver, Michael Pack, who's still waiting outside in the car and says, this, this woman's freaking out. You need, you need to come in here. Is it normal for an escort to have a driver? Great question. Actually, this whole driver issue is almost what really made me so interested in the case because the world of the quote unquote prostitute has changed with the advent of the internet and things like that. No longer really do we find women on street corners. What we find is that sex work has migrated to the internet where you can go on sites like previously Backpage or Craigslist, and you can basically hire or peruse the internet to find someone of your liking. Then you kind of correspond in code over places like Backpage, and a sex worker will then show up at your house. Usually that sex worker gets there via a driver. And a driver is almost like a de facto pimp in some respects. Drivers are part of the exchange and part of the process. They bring the girl or the man. They wait outside to make sure that person is safe. You know, then they drive back. And sometimes a girl will have one driver. A friend of mine was a driver for a long time. And, wow. And his job was to be texting the later clients to keep them on the hook. And sometimes that involves sexting. And so it was very funny. This was a, this so was that's a, a dual role. It's then. a dual role. And sometimes, you know, it's, it's security. So I was very intrigued by that relationship of the driver, this kind of like half pimp per se. And you had not heard about that before you kind of dug into this case? No, you know, I, I really hadn't. I have to admit, I don't like serial killer cases. I think the, the media. You might be in the wrong business. Yeah, Josh. I guess so. I think the media does a really poor job. Of, of kind of glorifying the serial killer. When I did a previous film, Cropsy, about some missing kids in Staten Island, one of the mothers said, okay, I'll talk to you, but you have to make me a promise. You have to promise never to do a story about a serial killer. But then the Long Island serial killer case happened, and I broke that promise. And the reason I broke that promise was because the world needed to know how serial killer cases are really investigated and not on television. They're way more complicated. They're way more screwed up. They're way more tragic. And they're not as transparent. And I mean, there's so much. Not as there's so much pressure on the police. Did you find that they were just becoming more and more protective of their information? That was one of the things that really sparked me to do this case. Here we have 
what looks like an, an unbelievable serial killer case. And what I mean by that is this girl, Shannon Gilbert, basically she's at this house of this client. She's freaking out. She thinks the client is trying to kill her. She thinks the driver is trying to kill her. She runs out of the house, freaking out, calls 911. She says it's a 23-minute call to 911. And in that time, she's saying, they're trying to kill me. They're trying to kill me. They. That is one of the operative mysteries of this case. Because one guy signed up for her services. Is That's that right? right. So who's the they? Um, is it Joseph Brewer, the client? Is there somebody else in the house? Or is this the client and the driver who have somehow joined forces and are trying to kill her? And she's also maybe doing drugs. So it could be just a hallucination also. There's a lot of things going on. But the point is, the call is dropped. Shannon Gilbert is going around knocking on doors of neighbors. She knocks on one door, an older gentleman by the name of Gus Coletti. It's the middle of the morning. It's like 4 a.m. And he sees this young girl freaking out. And, you know, he says, okay. And he tells her to to stand on the porch. He's calling 911. She kind of is still freaking out, hangs up, runs off down the street, and is never seen from again. Michael Pack, the driver, had been driving around saying, looking for her as she's having this freak out, trying to get her back in the car. Her mother, Mary Gilbert, goes looking for her a couple days later, finds out, you know, that she's missing, calls her boyfriends, and they go to this Oak Beach, the last place she was seen. And the information is a little dodgy, sketchy, because she's involved in illegal activity, Mm -hmm. you know, so... Nobody wants to talk. Nobody wants to talk about it. The driver doesn't want to, you know, completely say what's happened, but he's being somewhat forthright. They go to the police... The police, of course, when they hear that a sex worker is missing, she's probably on a binge. She's drug-addled or sacked out somewhere. They don't pay that much attention. There's somewhat of a muted response from them. And she goes on this crusade to find her daughter. And this is Long Island Police, is that right? Yeah, this is the Suffolk County Police Department. Long Island is actually a very, very big, large place. It's part of technically the tri-state area. It's made up of two different counties, Nassau County and then Suffolk County. And Suffolk County is where the Hamptons are and where Montauk is, all these like kind of shishi places. But then there's like these these other places like Oak Beach. Long Island, you know, it's very somewhat blue collar, but it also has this really strong police presence. And the police presence is almost political. And so, and, but it's well supported. Is extremely really, well supported. They're not undermanned, and so at this point, they've sort of just blown this off as a sex worker gone missing, and we'll keep an eye on it. Yeah, and it's fairly typical of a lot of police departments, unfortunately, when it comes to missing sex workers. In their defense, a lot of these sex workers, not all, but a lot, are drug addled and things like that. So. Shannon Gilbert disappears and nobody can find her. Some interesting characters start to come out of the woodwork. She went missing in this gated community called Oak Beach, which is basically on one of the kind of shelter islands that's along the southern end of Long Island. The beach is right there. It's super desolate. And, you know, the nearest convenience store is 20 miles away. This is not a slum. This is a nicer No, there'd be a very nice gated community. There's high-end people in this community. It's a rich community. She goes missing. Mary Gilbert, the mother, is trying to find out what happens. And she gets in touch with a doctor named Peter Hackett. And Peter Hackett, they speak on the phone and he tells her, oh, I run a home for wayward girls and she's okay. He he says some weird stuff. He's insinuating that he has sort of possession of her? Uh, He's insinuating that maybe she was there at the house and don't worry, she's fine. Hackett has basically placed himself in, in, in this case in a weird way. There's a lot of confusion. What does Hackett know? Where is this girl? Nobody knows. The police start to become more and more involved the longer she's gone. They're looking for her. A couple weeks later, a cadaver dog is training along Ocean Parkway, which is basically the highway that brings people to Oak Beach. And this cadaver dog stumbles across four bodies, skeletonized, all wrapped in burlap, placed about 250 feet apart. We will later find out they're all sex workers. Just laying on top of the ground. It's interesting. I I read all these comments about people talking about, you know, the case, and they're like, I don't understand. I don't understand. These bodies were in brush. This is not along the side of the road brush. This is a highway, and there's about 20 feet till you hit the brush. The brush is an unbelievable tangle of poison ivy, poison oak. It's so thick you couldn't see the ground basically four to five feet above it. It's like the tangles. It's like you could be looking down and you would not see anything unless it was right 
in front of you. Well, you have to be pretty motivated to hide somebody in there. Yes, you do. The police stumble upon these four skeletons, again, 250 feet apart, kind of placed very specifically along this spot. And they can't believe what they found. These are four sex workers. We would later find out their names. They had disappeared basically over the course of the previous two years. Missing sex workers. There's so many of them out there, and and these are four of them. Somebody has reported each one of them at different times have have gone missing. That's correct. So these are not forgotten people. Somebody cared enough. We have met all the families of these four women. They all have issues. You know, one of them was heavily, heavily addicted, kind of on her last legs. The other came from Buffalo and had, we think, had been kind of lured to New York City by a Romeo pimp. We tracked all these histories. And one girl was last seen leaving a hotel along the Long Island Expressway. The last time she's leaving, she's leaving this Holiday Inn, getting in a car. No one can see the license plate, can't really see the car. No one hears from her again. Year later, she's one of these girls. Another one is this other girl who had been seen kind of leaving her house to go meet a John. Presumably, she got in a car, never seen from again. Hmm. Things like that. Now, they're such easy targets. Another one was last seen. She was from upstate New York and had been last seen in Penn Station. She was going to go home after coming down to New York to work for a weekend. And we assume she got a call from a John and had suddenly gotten in a car, maybe somewhere outside Penn Station and disappeared. So all kind of different storylines, very creepy, very serial killer-esque or what are you thinking? And then I know we'll talk about the cops, but sure. place that is that so that he can go back? Yeah. Because you're saying this brush is just covering. This is a trophy garden. Wow. Because Straight we know up. that many serial killers like to go back and yes. relive everything. Yes. Okay. So the cops, I'm assuming, are freaking out at this point. They are. Because what was once just a kind of random sex worker gone missing has turned into something Huge. Forced dead women along the side of a highway. Obviously the work of a serial killer. The ways in which these four women had gone missing were all very mysterious. Again, one from Penn Station, the other from a hotel in Long Island in Hapakak, and another one from another hotel in Suffolk County. Just very strange. Two of the women didn't have their cell phones with them. No sex worker leaves the house without a cell phone. A cell phone is how you get more clients. A cell phone is how you know how long to spend there. If somebody convinced them to leave their cell phone, that was a very deliberate act. And when we're talking about where these women last were, do we know that from the cell phone Ping the pings? Tower. Yeah, okay, so it's not that witnesses say, I saw this woman at Penn Station. It's that that, that was the last time their phone was— There's a couple different things. Like some of them are witnesses, some of them are cell phone pings. Like it's a whole bunch of different ways in which the police have established the timelines of all the, of these four women who had disappeared. And they don't have escort services in common, pimps in common. Backpage. Backpage is, is one of the services that they all use or Craigslist. The irony here is that everybody believes that the Internet will somehow make— Sex work. Safer. Safer. (laughs) The irony is it creates another level of anonymity and makes it that much more dangerous because a guy can go online and basically shop for the perfect victim. And then have someone show up at a room where she is vulnerable. I mean, at least Mm -hmm. if they're getting in a car, the woman has a good look at him and can make a judgment call, right? That's, That's exactly it. So what's changed is that sixth sense that a sex worker has when a John pulls up, she looks in the car, she or he are making split second decisions. They are saying, how's this personal hygiene? What does the car look like? Is it clean? And you can have a friend check him out and say, no, yeah, no, I've been with that guy. No, Sure, sure. Is there a baby seat in the back seat? He's a family guy. Perfect. No problem. There used to be that moment in which a streetwise sex worker could make an educated decision. Now, hopefully she didn't have to make that educated decision while high. That's another issue in itself. But you got to check out who your John was. Now, when you're doing out calls, which means you go to somebody's hotel room, they call you and they say, oh, I'm I'm at the Holiday Inn, exit 35, Haponkak, come meet me. I'm in hotel room 204. The only thing these women have to go on is the voice. Now, the problem is he's very nice. He's sweet talk, whatever. He offers you a little bit more money. You knock on the door, you step inside the room, then you see who's there. And does suddenly three guys jump out of a closet? Is suddenly he's got a suit on, but he's a crazy person? So they've lost that ability to have that split second decision. 
Some girls do in-calls where the John will come to them. We interviewed one girl in Killing Season. Her name's Super. She would exclusively work at a hotel. She would entertain three or four clients a day. And then later on at night, she would go out and do the out-calls. And the out-calls are more expensive because of the danger issue. We drove her around for a week, just wanting to know what that experience was like. This girl's out there in the Long Island serial killer's hunting grounds, she was taking her chances. Four skeletons, how are the cops identifying them? Is it immediate or does it take a while? Pretty quick, you know, matching up to missing persons, quick DNA. It's never that quick, but in, it's you know It's not TV quick, but yeah, it's not quick TV enough. Quick. The problem is a few weeks later, they find even more body parts. Different here, not full skeletons, they find body parts. And in fact, they're going up and down this long stretch, about 12 miles worth of brush and and there's these little kind of insular communities dotted along this highway there's like a state park and a little marina they're finding body parts they're finding legs and arms a baby and so they find upwards of i think at this point 12 more body parts and so at this point we've got anywhere between 10 to 16 bodies that they found four fully intact skeletonized bodies the first four, and then all these body parts of other sex workers who had gone missing a decade earlier. Based on the skeletons, he started in, is it 2011? Is that when it was? Well, the problem is, is that the first four women who were found were the last ones taken. And suddenly, finding all these other body parts, they connect back to other missing sex workers. For example, one leg connects to another leg that had been found in Fire Island in a trash bag. Wow. It's all these body parts all over Long Island. Another one, Peaches, is connected to a torso that had been found in a cooler in Nassau County in another park, dropped off on the side of the road. Is he throwing them out the window? I mean, how is he distributing? So the issue is, are we dealing with one killer or two? And how does two killers use the same trophy garden, if you will? And this is where the theories run wild. And this is where you had an earlier comment to me about how well law enforcement deals with a serial killer case, Long Island did not deal with it well. Now, to their defense, many police departments very rarely have a serial killer case. This is not something they train for. This is not something any of them ever deal with. Police departments are probably more well-prepared for an active shooter issue than a, than a serial killer case. Most police departments only get one every 20 years. Long Island, interestingly enough, although it had Joel Rifkin previously and their other fair share of serial killer cases, they just, the individuals who had been around at that time hadn't dealt with it. So there was a lot of back and forth about whether there was one serial killer or two. Working separately. So that's what everybody can't wrap their head around. Two serial killers, are they working in tandem or are they separate? What is it? I, having investigated the case, have my own theories. Those disagree with both the police at some points and both with the public at some points. But it's important to note that the police at one time had said there was one serial killer. Then they say, oh, well, now we've got two, if not more. And then they went back to the one serial killer. And, and it was a lot of back and forth between the police chief and the district attorney. And we don't know whether this back and forth was talking out of school, whether they just didn't know enough or whether they were trying to prevent panic. If you're going on the theory of two separate serial killers operating independently, are we thinking that there was the one and there's publicity and then someone else thinks, well, this is a great place. That's what I would think if I were so killer. <laughs> Why not just add to this other guy's body count and put everybody in there? I mean, is that the, is that the, the theory, whether you believe it or not? That's my theory. Okay. Well, so interesting, that makes sense to me. Well, it's actually. interesting. You got it, but you know serial killer cases, right? Right. right. But a lot of other people don't. You right. know, they don't know as intimately as maybe you or I do. Yeah. And you nailed it. But it's very hard for people to wrap their heads around how that could possibly be. That we're dealing with one serial killer who's been around for 25 years. So wait, they find these bodies what year? They find these bodies in 2011. The oldest set is from when is that dump, we think? The four who were intact, okay, are Marine Brainer Barnes, okay, last seen in 2007. Melissa Bartholomew, 24, last seen in 2009. Megan Waterman, 22, last seen in 2010, and Amberlyn Costello, last seen in 2010. Those are the four most recent, okay, the ones who were found intact. And their missing goes as far back as um, 2007. 
Basically, that's a span of three years from the earliest taken to when they were found, 2007 to 2010. These other body parts that were discovered a year later, they are Jessica Taylor, 20, went missing in 2003. Jane Doe number six, we don't know who she is. We don't know when she disappeared. We have Peaches, and Peaches is very interesting, and we can talk about what we discovered in terms of Peaches. Her torso, dismembered torso, was found in 97 in Nassau County. And by the way, there's a baby, baby doe. How old is the baby? We don't know. Under a year. Yeah, I mean, baby doe is actually the child of Peaches. He is taking what we call forensic countermeasures to prevent identification. He's placing the baby next to a different victim. This guy is smart. There's a bunch of other legs and stuff, um, what I call Fire Island Jane Doe. Her legs were discovered in 96, and her skull was found in 2011, okay? Her legs show up in a plastic bag on Fire Island in 96. Police find her head along this stretch of roadway in 2011. That is 15 years. So if this is really one person... This person's been doing this for a long time. He's changed his MO, okay? Originally, they're all dismembered bodies. Heads, legs, legs are showing up in plastic bags on Fire Island, washing up someplace, okay? So he's tossing a body part here. He's leaving a torso, peaches, in a cooler along a trail in Hempstead Park. He's leaving something there. Why is he leaving something? So somebody can discover it. Why would you do that? Because you want to freak people out. Hmm. So it's not to be discovered. It's the thrill of seeing it in the news. He left a torso in a cooler along a fairly well-traveled park. (laughs) So you are wanting at that point in 97, you're wanting people to find it. I don't think it's because you feel bad. I think it's because you want... Shock value. Shock value. Where's the switch? Where does the MO change dramatically? So the MO changes with these last four girls. The skeletons, because they're intact. They're intact and wrapped in burlap, Hmm. burlap bags. Burlap has been a clue that has then sent web sleuthers on numerable journeys. Well, because it's burlap. So what does that mean? Is that a landscaper? Shades of Joel Rifkin. Is that a clamor? Because there's a lot of oysters and clams around. There's a lot of theories and apparently the bag was very specific and there was a landscaper there who had killed himself on Long Island and we went to the landscaper's business and looked at the bags. It's it's we went down the rabbit hole. Yeah. So but back to the major point. The MO changes completely with these last four women. They're found intact, wrapped in burlap. Is it one killer who's very successful and then suddenly towards the end, after a 15 year reign, decides, you know what, I'm just gonna not take all these forensic countermeasures anymore and leave them for the ultimate shock value, wrapped in burlap along the side? Or is it two guys? Now, (laughs) I laugh only because I keep putting this theory out there, and this is not just my theory. This is some other fairly intelligent individuals who I've spoken to believe it's one killer lays these four girls out. Another killer says, oh my God, there's another killer in my neighborhood. Why don't I take all my body parts that I've kept over the years and throw them in his trophy garden. Two reasons to do so. One, to kind of defile his trophy garden, to piss on his trophy garden, but more so, suddenly I could throw all these body parts there and they'll attribute it to him. I'm in the clear. Is there evidence that these body parts were kept for that long? I mean, Good can question. we figure that out? The problem is, is the brush is so thick. Did the guy really throw them out of the car while driving by, or did he stop along the road and toss them out? Nobody quite knows. And look, I could be wrong, you know. I think it's a valid theory. It could really be wrong, but all these bodies are chopped up. They're dismembered. There's unbelievable forensic countermeasures being taken. We know the torso, Jessica Taylor is one of the girls who went missing. Her body's found in Manorville, right? Her the, the rest of her body parts are found along this highway in Gilgo Beach. And she had been dismembered and her torso was left on top of a pile of leaves. Peaches, her torso had been found in this cooler. Now you have a very specific type of serial killer called a torso killer. And apparently, from what I'm told, torso killers 
are a whole new world. You know, this is not a crazy dude just like murdering girls and a torso killer is, he's into bodies. And so one of the very most famous torso killers we know is Jack the Ripper. Mm -hmm. So if you know anything about Jack the Ripper, there's the idea that there were two killers and one was a torso killer and the other one, like the Whitehall Chapel Murders. If you look at that history, there was some back and forth and torso killers are so notorious that they're also really egocentric. And that's why some people believe that there's competition. We're dealing with both competition and also throwing body parts so that those individuals become that. Because there's also the Cleveland's torso killer, also, which is also unsolved, I think, right? Yes, that's correct. We try to bring this up in the series is that out of all the serial killers you're going to meet, according to the experts, torso killers are the worst. So in case people don't know, the torso killer body parts were found under old Scotland Yard during Jack the Ripper times, and it was four torsos found, and they wouldn't connect it to Jack the Ripper because the MO was seemingly different, as if a killer isn't capable of trying to outthink and, you know, yeah. change his MO. But I, I do believe that that idea that there are just some things that a killer cannot shake, it's a habit. Kind of go back and forth on whether or not you can really go off of you know, the way that they've killed someone in the past and whether they've evolved. Changed their MO. Yeah. I mean, that's the whole thing, right? And it's yeah. a your person. Things change. In the first book that I wrote, Death in the Air, was about a serial killer who, while he was living in Tin Rillington Place, John Reginald Christie, he had a neighbor move in whose wife and child were eventually murdered. John Christie testified against the husband. The husband, Timothy Evans, was hanged. And later on, when John Christie continues to kill women, it occurs to the police that, wait a second, maybe we hanged the wrong person. Mm -hmm. No one would believe that there were two killers living in the house at the same time. I absolutely believe it. And I said it in the book, and I said, listen, two serial killers in the same house? I don't know. But one serial killer, yes, with a wife beater who snapped and killed his wife, I absolutely believe it. But I don't think people want to believe that there are two serial killers in a place like Long Island operating at the same time. But I don't think people understand how many killers there are really out there. Well, we tried to make that point. So we said, okay, is this truly crazy? Well, let's go back to Joel Rifkin. There was Joel Rifkin and there was another guy at the same time. It's not crazy. In New York City, right outside our door, it is believed that there are six active serial killers at any one time in any major city. Wow, okay, I didn't now, know that. Now, serial killers, when I say that word, what do I mean? It's I mean, a broad definition. I, I mean, plus two. Gang members can be serial right. killers. I That's mean, when right. you That's look right. at the serial killer database, they're all lumped together. You have to kill at least two, Yep. right? in separate incidences, yep. and there doesn't have to be a cooling-off period necessarily. That's right. So our definition of serial killer is so different. That's correct. But it's not that crazy that there are the two types of serial killers that we think about going on. It happened in Long Island, not but 10 years previously. Right. So we tried to make that point. This is not that crazy. Long Island is a big, big place. It would be considered one of the largest cities in the United States in terms of populace, and it's very— bedroom community, you know, so it's not that crazy. So where is Shannon? Shannon has disappeared on all this. She's never found. Now, basically in 2011, as the police are wrestling with, oh my God, we have a huge serial killer on our hands. One, two, we don't know. They find Shannon's body. They find it in Oak Beach, in this gated community, in a marsh. And basically they first find her cell phone. Then they find some of her clothing. Then they find her body. And this is not far from the escorts where, where she went This is about to- two miles from the escorts. But like you have to go outside this gated community. You have to go down the road. So this brings up one of the craziest either links or coincidences I've ever seen in true crime. Because Shannon's body is found. She's intact. We don't know what happened to her. To the police, it looks like as if she died of exposure out in the middle of this marsh. She got lost. She fell in the marsh. She died. That's right. But why are her clothes off, they would say? Is there DNA evidence from someone on her other than the man she We don't know. And I literally had a conversation with the police chief about this, the commissioner at the time. He's like, people, they're, they're speculating, they're doing this. I was like, because you don't release information. Right. If you released information, you would stop the speculation. However, let's talk about Shannon Gilbert. Could we somehow believe that her death around the same time is not related to the deaths of these four sex workers who were found two miles away? She said on the telephone, they were trying to kill me. But her body is found, her clothes are off, and she's dead in this marsh. 
the police refused to release the 911 tape. So something's going on there. 23-minute 911 tape, right? That's right. So there's a lot of other questions that are brought up by Shannon Gilbert's disappearance, which leads to these other bodies being found. But yet her case, the police are saying she died of exposure. To test that theory, myself and Rachel, my partner in this, we went out into that marsh. And I have to tell you, I could totally see how that could happen. It is a marsh. It is two to three feet of water that's flooded or not flooded. And she disappeared in May or something like that. I, I would have to check the date, but everybody's like, I don't understand. How could she die of exposure in May? Let me tell you, it is freezing cold out there in May. Freezing cold. What some people believe is that basically she had been doing drugs, maybe MDMA, and she might have been taking bipolar medicine. The combination of the two creates the internal cooling, and basically you get hypothermia. You start to take off. You, you get really hot because you're on MDMA. You start to take off your clothes. Wait, what's that? Uh, drugs. Oh, okay. Um, ecstasy. It's okay. It's you have ecstasy. to dumb it down for me. Yeah, no, ecstasy. <laughs> okay, so basically it raises your internal body temperature. Even though it's cold out, your internal body temperature is so high, it kicks off your internal cooling system. You try and cool yourself, you take off your clothes, and then you die of exposure. She had also been found hunched under a bush. Now, there's something called terminal burrowing syndrome. It's a very weird anomaly, but it happens to people like who freeze to death outside. You found it when people die in like um, hikers or skiers, they'll take off their clothes. Basically, your lizard brain kicks in and you try and burrow underneath something for warmth. So what does Shannon's mother think about this theory of exposure? Shannon's mother does not believe it. She had gotten, first of all, the police were very mysterious. They did a bad job of doing an initial investigation. The police refused to release this 23 minute tape. She has been contacted by a weird doctor who says, don't worry, she's okay, but she left my house. I gave her medicine or something like that. Joseph Brewer, the client, had been spoken to by police and questioned up and down. He says she freaked out and ran out. All this weird stuff is going on. Now, I've interviewed the mom. I've interviewed the whole family. More than than just believing this is some drug-addled tragic freak out that led to somebody dying by exposure. How do you reconcile that story with then that leading to the discovery of a huge serial killer, one if not two, who had been killing sex workers for 10 years? Yeah, big coincidence. Unbelievable. These factors have then gone in to create what we have now. The Lost Girls movie that's coming out, Bob Colker's book, Lost Girls, unbelievable book, Bob and I have become friends and talked quite a bit about this. We used that book as the roadmap for our series. So this case is getting a lot of exposure. Right now, yes, a lot of exposure. Tell me— It's going to get bigger. And you wanted to talk to me about Peaches. Tell me about Peaches. There's a couple of key characters in here that you can kind of latch onto that don't represent all the sex workers, but it kind of makes you understand the different circumstances that these women were in. Right. So So, what's Peaches' story? Well— It's interesting you bring up Peaches, but let's tie Peaches into something else. The tape. Why are the police not releasing the tape? The 911 tape. Yeah. Did they lose the tape? Could be. Could be. Could be. There are rumors that have circulated around this Oak Beach of a boys club slash kind of eyes wide shut-ish male thing going on where they're killing these sex workers and then dropping them along the highway. Jeez. People will spin that story and 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 is and is Hackett the doctor part of it. Now, I don't think he's part of it, but then why would he call up and say, I know where your daughter is? I think Hackett's one of these crazy people who like inject themselves into criminal cases. Mm-hmm. Don't worry, it's going to be okay. He says that to the mother without really even knowing. He has a history of this kind of like hero complex. He was doing crazy things to inject himself as a hero, and he's got a history of that. He's also got a bum leg, so I don't think he's, you know, chasing Shannon through the woods. But there's another thing at play here, the police themselves. I told you originally that the police were kind of befuddled by what was going on. This police chief, Richard Dormer at the time, nice old gentleman, Irish, didn't know if it was one or two, and he had gotten in this kind of pissing match, if you will, with the district attorney named Tom Spoda. Good old boys who have been in the Suffolk County Police Department system for years. Now, remember how I said how the Suffolk Police Department is very powerful? 
well-paid, very powerful. And they're a force of their own. Richard Dormer, he was basically fired for having this spat against how many serial killers there were with the district attorney. And the DA's been, Spoda's been in there for decades. He names a guy, the police chief, James Burke. Now, James Burke is an interesting fellow. James Burke has a real sordid history and testified for Spoda in a case many, many years ago when Burke was a kid. Basically, Burke had known some some kids who killed another kid, and he said, oh, yeah, I saw them. You know, So he's, he's had this very long friendship with Spoda. And Burke is the police chief for a long time, and there were a lot of like issues. It's like, why were the police not talking about this case? Why were they not doing anything? We come to subsequently find out that Burke had basically stymied the Long Island serial killer investigation. He prevented the FBI from coming in and doing a lot of work. I was going to ask you that. When is the federal government coming into this? Right. Well, first of all, as you know, the federal government has to be asked. Oh, no, I did not know that. Yeah, It has to be asked to come in. The FBI Behavioral Task Force, you know, behavioral... Science. Unit. Units, that's right. So we interviewed a whole bunch of them, some very interesting guys. So this is the Clary Starling Behavioral Science Unit, right? Kind of mind hunters. This is the mind hunter, They're trying to figure out what personality, what kind of person we're supposed to be looking out for. Right, there's those contingent of people who say literally it's just the same old fortune teller type of work. Man in the basement, you know, white male, you know, his mother's basement. Yeah, (laughs) unassuming white male in the mother's basement. Okay. They have to be asked. They can't like just jump in. As you know, police departments are very territorial. For a long time, yes, they did a profile, but they didn't go in and like work boots on the ground with this case. And there was a lot of questions why. What we later find out is that James Burke was a real dirty cop. He was- The police chief. The police chief was a real dirty cop. and, And he didn't want the feds in, and we don't really know why, but we think it's because he had this fiefdom and he just wanted to rule it. And if the feds came in and they would start snooping around, they may find some of the other stuff that he was quote unquote doing, although we technically don't know what that is. Nobody wants to lose control of an investigation when it's your investigation, also at a minimum, right? Sure, at a, right, at a minimum there's territorialism. Right. But if you're also somewhat dirty, mm. and the FBI's coming in, they may find something that you don't want them to find. Now, we don't know, quite know what that was, but I've spoken to many, many detectives who worked on other cases. For example, the gang task force. Now, this is the same gang task force when we ca- talk about MS-13 in Long Island. Burke stopped that gang task force from happening in coordination with the FBI. Mm. That is what started to signal the alarm bells for Loretta Lynch, attorney general of New York, I think at the time. And basically they started to go after James Burke, the police chief, thinking he was dirty. Hmm. Like he's connected to- Well, that's the interesting thing. Hmm. What's he connected to? Is he connected to some weird old boy network that's killing prostitutes? Now we do know, interestingly enough, that Burke is connected to prostitutes. He has a relationship with an African-American prostitute and- in numerous conversations with people, and I could, this is quite real, I have no problem saying this, it's been said that he somehow was involved in the sex trade himself. So there's a lot of things at play in this story. And where are we with the media at this point? <laughs> Once we now have 10 to 16 bodies laid out, is the media freaking out or is this still a story that's sort of been quelled by the cops? There was the initial freak out, everybody on Good Morning America, oh my God, what's going on? There was the Nancy Grace, same old BS, which would have the victims' families on. There was the People magazine. There was all that stuff. Propping up the victims' families is so wonderful when there was a lot of issues going on. And we've known, I've met a lot of the victims again, interviewed Marie Gilbert and the whole family, and a lot of them are very, very nice, but there were issues. But at some point, you know, the media can only do so much. They just move on to the next case, especially when there's these mysteries. The Long Island police for many years refused to discuss the case unless they had some new information. And that's where we came into the picture because we felt that they were stymieing the investigation. We later find out they were stymieing the investigation. James Burke finally gets arrested for beating a a kid, basically, who had gone in and stolen his duffel bag out of his car. And in the duffel bag, in the car, is apparently what's found is, quote-unquote, nasty porn. Oh, gosh. Okay. So this guy's finally arrested and taken out of the position. Police chief is arrested, taken out of the position. We know he's got connections with sex workers. We know he's employing sex workers. We know he goes to sex workers and— 
there is a lot of shady stuff going on with him. And this is a good time for you or any investigator to go in because then there is a new sheriff in town who, you know, is taking up the mantle. And hopefully these guys, they like to reverse everything the person before them did, especially if they were crooked. Did you find somebody who was a little more willing to share information? Tom Sini, who became first the interim police commissioner and then became the DA because subsequently, and this was literally just a couple weeks ago, the DA, Tom Spoda, was convicted. Wow. You don't convict a district attorney who's been in that position for 25 years unless bad stuff is going down. Convicted of what? Protecting Burke in his whole investigation. Basically, what they're doing is they're stymieing investigations. So it's like like tampering with evidence in an investigation. Yeah, they're stymieing investigations because they are doing bad stuff. We don't know exactly what they're doing. And there's a lot of people think that one of the things they were stymieing was the Long Island serial killer case. Were they stymieing it because they didn't want the feds in to see what else they were doing? Were they stymieing it because if they went in, they would find out that their police chief is a sexual predator? Or would they find out that their police chief is not just a sexual predator, but is also part of this group of guys who are killing sex workers and Shannon is somehow connected to that? Like, this is where all the conspiracy theories start to come about. At this point, I don't know. Is he a serial killer? No, I don't think so. Is he connected to a philosophy about women are disposable? Yes. And did that philosophy basically hinder this investigation and allow one, if not more, serial killers to remain out there? I I believe that. Is Shannon Gilbert connected in this way? I don't know. It's either one of the craziest coincidences I've ever heard, or she is. Is Peaches in that section with Burke or no? So, good question. (laughs) This isn't one that's going to get us sued, is it, Josh? (laughs) No. Peaches was found, as I mentioned before, in a a container in Hempstead. So, there's the NamUs, where all the missing people are, either missing persons or the DNA and everything like that. And Peaches was found in 97 in Nassau County. The rest of these bodies pretty much were found in Suffolk County, although... They were right up against the line. The killer was, again, taking very specific forensic countermeasures and knowing that police departments don't speak to each other. Some are buried on one side of the county line versus the other. That's why somebody says, oh, he's law enforcement. He would know. He would know by separating them out that it's just an additional layer of of using the police's own issues against them. So we start to re-ask the medical examiner, could you please resubmit some of the Jane Doe DNA into the system, the CODIS system, to see if it matches? About a week later, we get back a very quick response that says, baby Doe is the child of Peaches. Mm. They had been sitting on this information and not making it public. They had not been making the fact that they knew that this baby was connected to this torso found in Nassau County. So two different counties. Two different counties. Wow. So why is that a poly key, something they were holding back because they didn't want people to know? Or were they trying again to prevent the feds from coming in? Hmm. Because if suddenly it's more counties are involved and that's another police department. So is this dirty cop scenario basically other ways preventing this case from getting solved? So at this point, what do you think? Who is this guy or these these two people? Does it just seem like this has to be somebody in law enforcement? That is the most likely? I still think it's two people mm-hmm. because the MOs are so different because of the time periods and just the way in which the second set of body parts came were discovered after the first. And everybody's like, no, that that's ridiculous. When I say two serial killers, they're like, how could two serial killers use the same dumping ground? I'm like, no, it's not that they're using the same dumping ground. It's one guy gets the recognition and then the other yeah. guy, the torso killer who's been there for years, kind of is pissed. Yeah. Or again, this is a great, great opportunity for me to throw my final body parts that I've been keeping in my little trophy garden in somebody else's trophy Yeah, garden. you certainly can't ever underestimate the hubris of a serial killer, ever. No, it's the same thing as spree killers. Right. 
It's the same hubris. It's just a different methodology of making themselves feel better. Right. You know, or more important. Well, I mean, look at BTK. I mean, you know, he might not have been caught had he not been stupid enough to send these letters to the cops. Sure. Now it's it's posting manifestos online. But, you know, it's real. It's just all ego. That's all we're really dealing with. So are these guys kind of in the same vein? I mean, are these both? Someone in law enforcement, or at least someone who watches a whole lot of CSI. They're too good. So professionally trained in some way. Some way. Do we need to talk about how many serial killers are some form of law enforcement, whether corrections officers, former police officers? Military. Military. Come on. I mean, it's like, that's the dirty secret. It's not really a dirty secret. It, 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 again, is about control. If you are a serial killer and you love to control victims to the point of killing them, you also (laughs) love being a cop. Or something like that. I have no problem with cops. I love cops, you know, rank and file. But that's just that's just a mental, mentally what we're talking about here. Right, right. You know, we're not talking about losers. Very rarely are we talking about the Jeffrey Dahmers. We're really talking more about buying, torture, kill type of guys who are into power and control. And this is one extension of that power and control. Some people, they're sadists corrections officers, things like that. Again, I have no problem with these guys, but this is just the stark reality that maybe the behavioral science unit doesn't want to talk about. So what was the official profile? White male. White male. Typical. 20, you know, 20, 30, 40. Knows some kind of law enforcement techniques. Lives in Long Island. That was a big one. Lives in Long Island because how would he know about this very specific area? You want to catch this guy? He's online. Well, obviously on Backpage, at least. Backpage got shut down, but yeah, you know, he's yeah. online. You know, he's online. He's trolling sex workers. The question is, he hasn't done it. So is he in a crazy cooling off period or just like there's too much heat? He's not stupid. As we know, it's not this crazy barking dog compulsion to do this. Serial killers get married. They have children. They find a different job. I will tell you the most stunning thing that occurred to me about serial killers is I always thought that they stop because they either move and nobody picks up that there's activity in another state because there's no connection or they die or they end up in prison. That's that's the that's the same old same old. But it never occurred to me until the Golden State killer got caught that they age out. It seemed clear that this guy was not going to be jumping through windows and escaping. <laughs> so, I mean, is this somebody who just finally just might have said, "I can't really do this anymore. I'm physically incapable of doing." It. We're talking about bodies that were found in 96, you know what I'm yeah. saying? So, so you're looking at somebody my age, 45 probably. Yeah. If they're let's say they're 20 years old and 96, so they're in their 40s. What's your fear here that this has not stopped that he's going to pop back up either he didn't want to get caught Oh, he left. Maybe he did go to prison. Maybe he did age out. Maybe he did have a girlfriend. My fear is that the case is never going to get solved. But then again, most serial killer cases take upwards of 20 plus to get solved. You know what I'm saying? What's the DNA? What's happening right now? Finally, like, like yeah, a couple I mean, weeks that's a great ago. question. So finally, fi- and this is where I get pissed off because some police organizations are proactive and they will do what they need to do. The problem is, is that the previous corruption which may or may not be linked to this case, has tainted the investigation to such a degree that everything else becomes incredibly either slow, again, tainted, evidence lost. And it's very hard to separate out what's incompetence, malfeasance, or not the police's fault. We're always criticizing the police. And you know, I'm the first one, but I'm also one of the first ones to defend them because th- these are just not easy cases to solve. Yeah. But the problem is, is there's a bad seed came in and basically shot the whole thing. So they won't release the, the 911 tape. Why does this sex worker say, oh my God, help me. Someone called James Burke because she happened to have gone to him. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? What about the operator? Nobody can talk to her? I mean, it's... I'm no, I, that's a good question. I, I, I don't know about that. I interviewed Marie Gilbert, Shannon Gilbert's mother. I interviewed Shannon Gilbert's sister. A couple of years ago, Shannon Gilbert's mother was killed by Shannon Gilbert's sister. Oh, wow. In a psychotic event. Stabbed. Wow. And I met them both and interviewed them both. There is a history of bipolar disorder. There is indications that she could freak out yeah. and have a serious freak out. The daughter, her sister, killed her mother. Yeah. Hearing voices, paranoia. And if you know how schizophrenia works and how it gets exacerbated and certain times in which it it, it reaches fruition, aging and things like that, 
it's not that crazy. But has she had those episodes before, Shannon? Has anybody, did a mom say, the sister say? It's hard to say because she was living away from her family. That's on, true. You know what I'm saying? It's yeah. like, if Shannon Gilbert is not connected, are you telling me that a girl goes missing, a sex worker, and two miles away in a, in a, in one of the greatest coincidences of all time, that sex worker's disappearance leads to the discovery of one of the most crazy unsolved serial killer cases in the last century and 16 sex workers, not just two and a half miles away. Well, let me ask you this just, <laughs> just for fun. And I say, I agree with that. I, I think so. You think that they're connected? or you I don't think, think they're connected. Well, I think it's one of the craziest coincidences I've ever seen. Well, because what I was going to say was, if you are thinking, if we are thinking these are connected, boy, what a different MO this is. You're going to call a driver and have the driver bring the girl right. to the house. And then suddenly you're going to kill that girl and what, send the driver home with an extra 20 bucks? I mean, that's not going to happen. Yeah. Then everybody's going to say, well, the driver's connected. I don't really think the driver's connected. It's all too traceable. Like, that would be the dumbest move by apparently two super smart serial killers. Right. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, it doesn't make sense. done all these friends' countermeasures, separating kids and dropping body parts and torso killings over here, over there, using all— I and mean, we haven't even gotten into the fact that the killer called the sister of one of the— one Whoa, of those, I didn't know that. Yeah. How do we know this is real? Used her phone. Oh, jeez. Call was pinged, called from somewhere in Times Square. Wow. He's not stupid. Well, yeah. Spoke to the sister who we interviewed, girl. Huh. Heard your sister was a whore. You're a half-breed, using weird statements. Yeah. We got a whole bunch of people who we thought might have been, and we played the tape for the sister to see if she would recognize, but no. That was the four girls. It sounds like, like a Jack the Ripper wannabe, you know, uh, using the whore and all of that. Like yeah. somebody who wants to be infamous, obviously. It's the whole thing. These things get solved because of DNA or the girlfriend who finally flips on the husband or, or something comes up and somebody says something somewhere. Well, let's hope so. That's all we can do. On the next episode of Wicked Words. How could a girl be considered kidnapped if she's not tied up, if she's not shackled? But there's so much you can do psychologically and mentally that in many ways can create even more trauma than being physically bound. If you love historical true crime, please check out my books, American Sherlock and Death in the Air. This has been an Exactly Right, Tenfold More Media production. Alexis Amorosi is our producer. Andrew Epen is our sound designer. Ella Middleton is a researcher for us. Curtis Heath does the composition. Nick Toga did the artwork. And Ilsa Brink designed the website. The executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. If you are an advertiser interested in advertising on our show, go to midroll.com slash ads. And if you know of a historical true crime story that could use some attention from the crew at Tenfold More Wicked, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. Listen, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. 